This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 107th edition of the program. Today is August 10th, and before we get started, as usual, I want to send a huge thank you to all of these kind individuals that decided to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week we have Chris Harris, Christopher Sheridan, Diana Guzman, Jake Janelle Jones, Jesse Jordan Gay, Linda Erisman, Pat Hauser, Pete Dion, Richard Wolf, TechTube Network, Thomas P. Hicks, Tim Bowie, and Victor Terrian. So big thanks to all of those kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit patreon.com slash humanistreport or visit humanistreport.com to find out how you could contribute to us monthly or just one time on PayPal. So on today's show, we've got actually a pretty long episode. So first up, we'll talk about the exchange of threats between the United States and North Korea. And we'll then get into the main subject of the show, which is the civil war on the left. And we'll discuss the ongoing Bernie Sanders versus Kamala Harris debate. We'll also talk about how establishment insiders are lambasting progressives for their so-called purity tests. And also about how Democrats are worried that their unwillingness to support Bernie Sanders' upcoming Medicare for All bill will lead to them being primaried. And also in this episode, we'll talk about Joanne Reed's lunacy, Bernie's 2018 challenger, John Svitosky, the effort to recall California's assembly speaker after he killed single-payer healthcare, and what Joe Manchin said about his re-election chances in 2018. Now, additionally, we'll cover Trump's plummeting approval ratings. And finally, in this episode, we'll speak with 2018 congressional candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So all of these topics will be covered in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in because we've got a lot. And this is going to be a long episode where we really go in depth with some of these stories. So um, hopefully you guys will enjoy the show. So a few months ago on the show, we talked about how Donald Trump was ramping up his saber rattling against North Korea as a result of them conducting missile tests. And what was already a tense and volatile situation just got exponentially more terrifying. So last month, North Korea conducted two tests of intercontinental ballistic missiles, both of which are presumably capable of reaching the United States. Now, as a result, the United Nations voted to impose even harsher sanctions on North Korea, to which the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. stated, we're not playing anymore. Now, even though these sanctions are severe, the New York Times explains the resolution did not sanction oil imports, which are critical to the functioning of the North Korean state. Now, initially, you might think that since that's the case, these new sanctions won't actually hurt the North Korean regime. However, China, who's been an ally to the North Korean regime and has been basically propping up North Korea's economy, agreed that they're willing to accept whatever economic consequences might impact their country as a result of these new sanctions on North Korea. Now, according to CNN, the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi stated, in order to maintain the international nuclear non-proliferation system and regional peace and stability, China will, as always, enforce the full content of relevant resolutions in a comprehensive and strict manner. So, North Korea is in a lot of trouble, and Kim Jong-un knows it, and in response to these new sanctions, 
Kim Jong-un threatened to retaliate against the United States, quote, thousands of times over. He also vowed to never give up its nuclear arsenal and called the penalties a panicky response by an American bully. But the story doesn't stop there, because according to the Washington Post, North Korea has successfully produced a miniaturized nuclear warhead that can fit inside its missiles, crossing a key threshold on the path to becoming a full-fledged nuclear power, U.S. intelligence officials have concluded in a confidential assessment. The findings are likely to deepen concerns about an evolving North Korean military threat that appears to be advancing far more rapidly than many experts had predicted. U.S. officials concluded last month that Pyongyang is also outpacing expectations in its effort to build an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of striking the American mainland. Now, as a result of this finding, President Trump responded by basically implying that he would nuke them. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Yeah, so um, he didn't mince words there. He was basically implying that he was willing to use nuclear weapons. He stated, quote, they will, they will be met with fire, fury, and power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. That's a pretty big threat. That implies that he's willing to use nuclear weapons against North Korea. And even if that's not his intentions to imply that, well, certainly North Korea could reasonably construe it that way. Now, to make matters even worse, he has a bunch of lunatics in his ear, basically egging him on. So, right-wing evangelical pastor Robert Jeffries, who serves on the advisory board to Trump, assured the president that, quote, in the case of North Korea, God has given Trump authority to take out Kim Jong-un. I'm heartened to see that our president, contrary to what we've seen with past administrations who have taken, at best, a sheepish stance toward dictators and oppressors, will not tolerate any threat against the American people. So these are the types of lunatics that are advising Trump. They're saying, hey, look, the magical man in the sky, he's giving you authority to invade North Korea. So it's okay. You know, you have the authority to do it because God is allowing you to do this. I mean, this is absolutely terrifying and absurd. Now, to make matters worse, in response to Donald Trump's threat to basically nuke North Korea, North Korea responded with a terrifying threat of their own. So CNBC explains, North Korea said on Wednesday it is carefully examining a plan to strike the U.S. Pacific territory of Guam with missiles just hours after U.S. President Donald Trump told the North that any threat to the United States would be met with fire and fury. A spokesman for the Korean People's Army in a statement carried by the North's state-run KCNA news agency said the strike plan will be put into practice in a multi-current and consecutive way and moment once leader Kim Jong-un makes a decision. In another statement, citing a different military spokesman, North Korea also said it could carry out a preemptive operation if the United States showed signs of provocation. Earlier, 
Pyongyang said it was ready to give Washington a severe lesson with its strategic nuclear force in response to any U.S. military action. And at the time I'm recording this, President Trump has not responded directly to North Korea's threat to bomb Guam, but he did release a vague statement about the use of nuclear weapons on Twitter, saying, My first order as president was to renovate and modernize our nuclear arsenal. It is now far stronger and more powerful than ever before. Hopefully, we will never have to use this power, but there will never be a time that we are not the most powerful nation in the world. Now, I'm honestly not really sure what to make of that tweet. It's pretty vague. I don't necessarily know what he means by that, but thankfully and surprisingly, it seems as though Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is the cooler head in the matter, and he's being the voice of reason. So he's one of the more sane voices telling Trump, can we slow down a little bit and stop saber-rattling against North Korea? It's just insane. So, I mean, look, overall, here's where we're at in this situation. We have two egotistical man-babies who are currently playing chicken with each other. And meanwhile, millions of human beings are caught in the middle. Now, on one hand, Kim Jong-un's constant missile tests and threats could actually provoke an unhinged American president to strike preemptively. But Trump's continued escalation of the situation could also prompt Kim Jong-un to strike Seoul, or potentially Guam. Now, the situation isn't just terrifying because it threatens Americans in the continental United States, or Guam, or citizens in Japan or South Korea, but an invasion of North Korea will inevitably lead to loss of innocent North Korean lives who are no more able to control what their man-baby leader does than we are. So, the situation is it's awful. It's really awful. Um, it could be potentially destabilizing internationally. And you also have Republicans now rushing to encourage Donald Trump to do one of the most awful things we can do. The military expert says there is no good military they're option. Uh, they're wrong. There is What's a military a option to destroy North Korea's program and North Korea itself. He's not going to allow President Trump the ability of this madman to have a missile to hit America. If there's going to be a war to stop him, it will be over there. If thousands die, they're going to die over there. They're not going to die here. And he's told me that to my face. So what you just heard was the ramblings of an absolute madman who has no regard and no respect for human life whatsoever. He just doesn't care. So Lindsey Graham is someone who I don't know why Democrats consider one of the more moderate Republicans. But if you are encouraging Donald Trump to wipe out North Korea, you're just you're an objectively bad person. If you're advocating for death of thousands, potentially millions of lives, you're a bad person. I mean, I don't even know how to process what he was saying. It's so egregious. Now, also, you can expect the pro-war media elites to ramp up their propaganda campaign and tell us that we should invade North Korea for humanitarian reasons to help North Koreans. But the minute you hear that, dismiss it. Because there's no such thing as a humanitarian war. And if we invade North Korea, North Koreans will die. And if they invade us which, you know, it's unlikely, but if they try to bomb us, then Americans will die. And the goal here is to protect human life because this pissing contest between these two fools is not important. Their egos doesn't matter. What matters is human life. What matters is international peace and stability. And these two nitwits here are jeopardizing that by constantly issuing threats back and forth to one another. So we don't know whether or not when Trump issues a threat, he's just posturing or... 
uh, whether or not Kim Jong-un issues a threat and, 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 you know, he's just posturing. More than likely, both of them are just posturing because they have big egos. But we shouldn't take a chance. We shouldn't take a gamble. We should treat both of their threats as legitimate threats because these two buffoons are just idiots. You know, they're crazy enough to where they could potentially do something. So, look, the goal is peace. So, um, let's just hope that Donald Trump listens to the more reasonable people within his administration and reason wins out because, you know, an invasion of North Korea and bombing either way would just be unthinkable. For months now, Bernie Sanders has been hyping his upcoming Medicare for All bill that he'll be introducing in the Senate, presumably within the next couple of months. Now, in order to help him promote this bill, he actually asked his supporters via email what they suggest he should do to counter right-wing attacks and promote the bill in a more effective manner. And upon sending that email, within the first day, not only did Bernie Sanders receive thousands of responses, but he also raised more than $65,000, and he's now asking citizens to co-sponsor his legislation that he'll be introducing. So I'll link below if you'd like to join that effort and co-sponsor his Medicare for All bill. But in addition to what Bernie Sanders will be doing, there's also been a lot of grassroots activism occurring at town halls where activists are putting pressure on Democratic lawmakers in order to get them to support Medicare for All. And basically, they're threatening them. If they don't support it, they will lose their seat. And when corporate Democrats recently saw how someone like Representative Ruben Kiwin of Nevada's 4th ended up getting a primary challenger as a direct result of his unwillingness to co-sponsor John Conyers' H.R. 676 bill, the Senate Democrats now, upon knowing that Bernie Sanders will ultimately be releasing his Medicare for All proposal soon, they're really worried because Democrats likely realize that if Bernie Sanders does introduce a Senate Medicare for All bill and they don't support it, then, like their colleagues in the House, well, they might be in trouble. They might actually face a primary challenger in 2018. So establishment Democrats that have been bought off by the health insurance industry are now shitting themselves because upon introducing this piece of legislation, Bernie Sanders is forcing them to show their cards and they know that if he introduces Medicare for All and they don't support it, they're going to look really bad. So right now they're currently scrambling, trying to figure out a way to make themselves look better. And knowing that this is the case, the Democratic Party's usual stooges in the media have tried to come to their rescue, like Joshua Holland of The Nation, who argues Medicare for All isn't the solution for universal health care. But actually, it is. With Medicare for All, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have something to work with. People love it. So all we have to do is improve it and expand it. Now, of course, I'm oversimplifying just how easy, you know, this process will be. But the fact is that we have a starting position. We know that Medicare works, so all we have to do is tweak it and work with that. So to say that Medicare for All isn't the solution is wrong, but we know that someone like Joshua Holland may not actually feel this way about Medicare for All. He's just doing propaganda on behalf of the Democratic Party establishment. But Joshua isn't alone here because Paul Krugman also argued against single-payer, stating how... Quote, but single payer, while it has many virtues, isn't the only way to get there. It would be much harder politically than its advocates acknowledge, and there are more important priorities. Okay, first of all, none of us are under the illusion that creating 
public policy with respect to single payer would be easy, but the point is that we elected you, uh, Democrats in Congress, to draft public policy that we want. So get to work. That's your job. Your job is to create policy and pass legislation and do what we want you to do. We want you to pass single payer. Other countries got it done. So if you don't know how to do it here, then go to Canada, go to the United Kingdom, figure out a way to get it done because that's what we want you to do. A majority of the country is on board with single payer. So now it's their job to carry out the will of the people. And second of all, when it comes to... Uh, Paul Krugman saying, quote, there are more important priorities. With all due respect, you can go fuck yourself for saying that. Because as someone with a net worth of more than $2.5 million, I think there's probably few medical procedures that you wouldn't be able to afford out of pocket. But for those of us that don't have millions of dollars like you, we actually have to worry about either dying or going bankrupt if we have a medical emergency and don't have health insurance. I'd like to see you talk to Amy Valela, who lost her daughter at the age of 22 because she couldn't prove that she had medical insurance. Tell her that there's more important priorities. When there are people dying and going bankrupt as a result of them not having medical insurance, I'm sorry, but I can't think of anything more pressing that we should address immediately. And as someone who claims to be influenced by Joseph Stiglitz and John Keynes, you're really willing to bend on your principles in order to defend a corrupt party that's refusing to embrace the economic philosophy that you claim to agree with that helped you gain notoriety. So Paul Krugman's statement, it is not only an example of how an elite is out of touch with ordinary Americans, but it's just morally reprehensible to diminish what Americans need and say that there are more other important priorities. It's just there's something inherently wrong about that, and I reject it unequivocally. Look, I'm not saying that there aren't other important priorities, but to say to basically downplay and diminish the significance of Medicare for All and what that would do to improve our lives, it's just unacceptable. Now, these couple of examples, they're just two of the many um, <laughs> propaganda efforts waged on behalf of the Democratic Party to get us to think that Medicare for All isn't actually the best solution. But thankfully for us, we're all waking up and we're on to their games. We know that the usual attack dogs in the media are just trying to defend the Democratic Party because they're going to look really bad when Bernie Sanders introduces this bill and they don't come out to support it. And an article in Politico by Gabrielle De Benedetti titled Sanders Litmus Test Alarms Democrats sheds light on the amount of fear Bernie Bernie Sanders' upcoming Medicare for All bill is actually causing Democrats to have. So the subtitle really says it all. It states, Bernie Sanders' single-payer plan sparks fears of primary election challenges. So the article states, House and Senate Democrats have wondered for months whether Bernie Sanders supporters might choose to focus their energy on launching primary challenges to party moderates in 2018. They're about to get an answer. Sanders has decided the moment is right to launch his proposal for the single-payer health insurance system that helped form the backbone of his presidential message. And Democrats who don't get behind it could find themselves on the wrong side of the most energetic wing of the party, as well as the once and possibly future presidential candidate who serves as its figurehead. The Vermont senator himself has not explicitly said he'll support primary challenges to those who won't support his push for a so-called Medicare for All healthcare plan, but there are plenty of signs that Sanders and his allies view the issue as a defining moment for Democratic lawmakers. Our view is that within the Democratic Party, this is fast emerging as a litmus test, said Ben Tolchin, the pollster for Sanders' White House run. 
The single-payer concept is increasingly popular in the party. High-profile senators like Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Kamala Harris have expressed some support, and for the first time, a majority of House Democrats have now signed on to a single-payer bill that Representative John Conyers has been introducing regularly for more than a decade, with Sanders promising to play a major role in 2018 races. That's led many party officials to worry about the prospect of his involvement in primaries that could append the Democratic establishment plans to win crucial Senate and gubernatorial seats. The fears are acute enough that when the Nevada chapter of Our Revolution, the political group spawned from the Sanders presidential campaign, endorsed long-shot candidate Jesse Sabai in the state's Democratic Senate primary over party favorite Representative Jackie Rosen, retired former Senator Harry Reid felt the need to call Sanders directly. Don't endorse Sabai and don't let the National Our Revolution group accept its Nevada chapter's recommendation to back him either. The former minority leader implored his friend. Sanders agreed, said a Democrat familiar with the interaction. There's a concern that Sanders' allied people will try to make a stir, said a senior Democratic aide working on a 2018 campaign. You just can't be a liberal Democrat in a lot of these states and be elected. So the question is how we improve the lives of people instead of playing these political games. Sanders' allies don't find that argument convincing. Any Democrat worth their salt that doesn't unequivocally say Medicare for all is the way to go? To me, there's something wrong with them, said former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, president of Our Revolution. We're not going to accept no more hemming and hawing, no more game playing, make your stand. What's clear is that Sanders' large and politically active following has stopped Democrats from confronting him directly, including when it comes to offering alternatives to his Medicare for all measure. Many still remember the swift and angry January response from grassroots progressives, including Sanders supporters, toward Booker for a symbolic drug importation vote and toward Senator Elizabeth Warren for her procedural vote in favor of Ben Carson's nomination as housing secretary. The distrust between Sanders' forces and the establishment is increasing the tension. Some Democratic senators privately bristled at the health care rallies that Sanders and others organized across the country in January. They were shocked to be greeted by angry Sanders backers in the crowds who'd loudly urged them to back a single-payer plan, according to several Democratic senators and aides. There is also long-standing grumbling over his refusal to share his campaign email list with other Democrats and, more recently, over his vote against a new round of sanctions against Russia and Iran. In the words of one senior aide to Sanders' campaign, a special cloud of denial formed over the swamp when polls started coming out showing Bernie was the most popular politician in the country. So this to me is fascinating because it sheds light on establishment figures within the Democratic Party that are really dreading the introduction of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. And good, you should dread it because if you're not going to get on board, you bet your ass progressives will be coming after you. Now, what's really enlightening about this article is that it talks about how Senator Harry Reid is urging Bernie Sanders to not endorse Jackie Rosen's challenger. And Jackie Rosen is someone who does not support Medicare for All. She's a so-called Democrat who doesn't support a plan that the overwhelming majority of Democratic voters support. And what's interesting is that even though Harry Reid retired, 
he still is very powerful when it comes to Nevada and politics because I told you guys recently about how Representative Ruben Kiwin was being primaried by Amy Valela. She's someone who lost her daughter as a result of us not having single payer. And since Ruben Kiwin won't co-sponsor John Conyers' Medicare for All bill, she's primarying him and she's going to challenge Ruben Kiwin. But the thing about Ruben Kiwin is that he is Harry Reid's golden boy. Harry Reid loves Ruben Kiwin, so he's trying to pull all the strings behind the scenes for Ruben Kiwin in order to defeat Amy Vallejo, someone who would actually represent the people of Nevada. So these establishment Democrats, they don't know what's coming because Medicare for All, the momentum for it is not going to die down. And certainly with this push and how large it's become, if we would back, if we were to back away from this right now, we'd be stupid. So Democrats that don't co-sponsor Medicare for All, they will get a primary challenger. And if they don't believe us when we say that, you can talk to Ruben Kiwan about what happened when he refused to co-sponsor HR 676. We came for his job and we're going to be coming for your job if you don't get on board with Medicare for All. And for whatever reason, if we're not able to successfully primary you, then you shouldn't expect our support in the general election because if you're not going to get on board with one of the most important issues to us, then what good will you do if we give you our votes? You actually have to earn our votes. You can't just campaign on the premise that you're less shitty than Republicans. You actually have to promise us that you're going to get on board with Medicare for All and we should have an actual reason to believe that you will in fact support it when you are elected or when you get back in office. If not, then you're not going to get our support. And in fact, you will be admonished by progressives, if anything. So we're not going to negotiate on this issue. And a compromise of any sort is not on the table. Now, you can bemoan purity tests, Kamala Harris. You can call me a whiner, Howard Dean. But as voters, you have to do what we want. And if you don't do what we want, you will lose. It's really that simple. So... I can't really be more clear than I'm being right now. Um, if you don't support Medicare for All, you will not get my vote. I will either vote third party or just not vote. So you're not going to get our support. So either you get on board right now or you risk being kicked out of office. And for the longest time, the establishment has been telling us progressives to fall in line. But now it's time for us to tell you to fall in line, support Medicare for All, or get kicked out of office and lose your job. It's that simple. And look, when Bernie Sanders does introduce his Medicare for All bill, we will be paying attention to the individuals that choose to co-sponsor it and not co-sponsor it. Uh, because this is really important. This is the defining issue of our generation. If you don't get on board with something that is the moral issue of our time, perhaps, besides money and politics and climate change, then you don't belong in office. Once again, we're talking about this notion of a purity test, or litmus test, if you will, and this conversation was mostly galvanized due to progressives' skepticism over Kamala Harris, but there's a couple of other reasons why we're talking about purity tests. So, it is the case that progressives are trying to make Medicare for All a purity test in 2018. And furthermore, there's a discussion about whether or not the DCCC should withhold funding from candidates who are not pro-choice. So to give you a couple of examples of the discussion that's taking place, one of the Democratic Party's biggest shills, Michael Tomaski of the Daily Beast, 
penned an article titled The 2020 Democratic Purity Olympics Are Already Underway with the caption Self-Defeating and the subtitle The Bernie Sanders supporters attacking Kamala Harris are itching to refight 2016 and demand a level of purity that, lo and behold, only one candidate can possibly attain. And when it comes to the prospect of a Medicare for All litmus test, Democrats are worried that their unwillingness to get behind Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill will lead to them being primary. And this is discussed in an article for Politico by Gabrielle De Benedetti. And finally, when it comes to whether or not being pro-choice should be a litmus test, Governor Jerry Brown of California weighed in, saying abortion rights should not be a litmus test. So understand what the Democratic Party is doing. They're actually being very regressive here because it's not just that they won't allow progressives to make a new issue, Medicare for All, a litmus test, but they're going back on what was once previously a litmus test for Democrats, abortion. Because if you looked to the Democratic Party label, you just knew and you could extrapolate from that label that they would support a woman's right to choose, but now they're hedging on that and they're walking away from what was once a core position of the Democratic Party. So they're becoming even more ideologically incoherent in their quest to win elections when if they actually became more ideologically consistent and unified around certain issues, then they might actually win because people would know what they stood for. So ideologically speaking, the party just stands for nothing. And that doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon because they just expect all of their candidates to be shapeshifters and they want them to conform to whatever a particular state or district wants. But the problem is that by offering voters in more conservative regions of the country no real alternative, then they're going to demoralize their core base. Who's going to come out and support them and support a candidate that's just a Republican-like candidate. They just stay home. We've seen this time and again. And as a direct result of them shifting further and further to the right and what they stand for just becoming more amorphous, the Democratic label, it just means nothing now. If anything, the Democratic brand is more synonymous with corruption than it is with any one policy. So this is a disaster. And in trying to get them to adopt some type of purity test or some set of core principles, we're actually helping the party. Even though they don't want to admit that, we're helping the party. But nonetheless, they don't want any type of purity test. And one of the most prominent Democrats gave us a piece of his mind on AM Joy on MSNBC and uh, let us know that if we support purity tests, then he has no patience for us. There has always been a section of the left, which I call, call as the the... Uh, the whiny party, the party that doesn't really want to win, they just want to be pure. And if they go down swinging purely, then that's fine. Well, the problem with that is it leaves behind the people who really need their help. If we're going to have a single payer or Medicare for all or whatever we're going to have uh, in health care that covers every American, as every other industrialized country have, then we all have to pull together. And people who sit out or, cr or crank on some candidate because they did this or that, it wasn't to their purity test, are basically turning their back on the very people they pretend to represent. So I don't have a lot of patience with, the, with this wing of the progressive party and there and this look this is a lot of this is a media creation the media sees conflict it creates this to do there are not a lot of people that feel the way that you all described about Kamala Harris yeah uh, and uh, you know I think we just have to get a life and pull together and do what's right for the country instead of having these silly fights among ourselves which I have to say are perpetrated in part by the media no, and so you know that Joanne Reed was just 
eating all of that up. <laughs> she was loving everything that Howard Dean had to say. Um, so look, in that short clip, he said that progressives should get a life. Um, he called us whiny. He said that we don't actually care about the marginalized groups that we purport to care about. But the problem, you know, is that in the midst of his smug tirade, everything that he said was just wrong. We do care about marginalized groups. We do care about winning. In fact, we have the winning strategy. The candidate who we support the most, Bernie Sanders, is the most popular politician in the country. So if you really want to win, you would adopt a populist platform because currently there's a populist wave sweeping not just the country but the world. And it's left-wing populism. It's the only thing that can defeat right-wing fascism. But they don't get this. And Democrats, they claim to be the party that cares about marginalized minorities, but they're supporting policies that actually harm those communities. And by calling us purists, it's not really about purism. We're just telling them to support populist policies because that's what they can do to win. Bernie Sanders is someone that can pass this so-called purity test, and he's the most popular politician in the country, again. So maybe if the party was more pure and less corrupt, they'd actually win again. And Howard Dean doesn't like like these so-called purity tests because he was once pure himself but he then sold out and became a lobbyist for the health insurance industry and our medicare for all purity test would put him out of business so he's working overtime on behalf of his employers to make sure that medicare for all never sees the light of day so that's why he's bemoaning purity tests and what he's saying now about purity tests sounds a lot different than what he was saying just last month about purity tests because he actually asserted that he would be withholding support for the DCCC if they funded candidates that were opposed to abortion rights. So Howard Dean has his own purity tests, but he's criticizing us for having our version of a purity test. But the abortion purity test, you know, the thing about that is he can get behind that type of litmus test because that doesn't interfere with him being a lobbyist for the health insurance industry. So that particular test is okay, but if you threaten his livelihood, then he's gonna come out against purity tests. So Howard Dean is on both sides of the purity test issue because while he's lambasting us for having a purity test, he has his own purity test, and I agree with him. I think that the DCCC should withhold funding for candidates that are not pro-choice because that's one of the core values of the Democratic Party. If you lose that, then what do you stand for? Now, on another MSNBC show, Howard Dean started to walk back some of his comments after he received criticism because what he said was just ridiculous. So, Howard Dean, who are the whiners in your party that you were complaining about with our colleague Joy Reid? Well, there's always, there's always a few. I mean, look, I... I Give us some course, names. Name usual, names. No, 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 we're not going there. So but, who's but, whining? No, I don't there. follow it as closely as you do. Okay. But, I mean, what category of people are the whiners? People in the media? People I, I'll in tell Congress? You the, the, no, no, no. Uh, we're talking. I'm talking about Neighbors. members of uh, <laughs> Who's members of the I'm just party curious. who complain all the time. Well, I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> members of the party. I'm talking about the the small minority of people who have to have everything perfectly. Who have to attack uh, somebody like the ones that burned me up over the weekend were people who attack Kamala Harris. And look, we don't have a perfect candidate. No matter who we have, left, right, or center of the Democratic Party, they're not going to be perfect. People are going to complain about them. Stop it. We can't beat the Republicans who are incredibly well organized unless we all hang together. So what I, what I object to in my party is people, as Ted Kennedy once said and others have said it too, is letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. We are not going to nominate a perfect candidate no matter who it is, whether it's Bernie Sanders uh, or Kamala Harris or any Chris Murphy or any of the 
hundreds of really, or at least it seems like hundreds these days, 20 great people that have been talked about. So we're not going to, whoever we nominate, we have to get behind. And we have to stop complaining about they might have taken a contribution for Wall Street or they, they want something that's too far left that's impractical. Stop it. There's a nomination process. Stop complaining and get ready to pull for who the, whoever the nominee is. Okay, so in that clip, he states that, you know, we don't have a perfect candidate. He implied that there's no such thing as a perfect candidate, and even Bernie Sanders is not a perfect candidate. Now, I agree with that notion. I don't think that Bernie Sanders is perfect. But the problem is that the Democratic Party hasn't just been giving us imperfect candidates, because I can support someone who's imperfect. They've been giving us garbage candidates. And the real reason why Democrats like Howard Dean don't like this idea of a purity test is because... They can't just be less shitty than Republicans anymore. They actually have to stand for something. And since they don't stand for anything, they're now attacking the people that aren't supporting them because they don't stand for anything. So that's just absurd to me. And they're still doing what they did in 2016. If they have a platform and if they give us candidates that aren't appealing to voters, they don't try to change and adjust what they're doing in order to make themselves more appealing. They just lambast those voters who they're not appealing to. I mean, this is really unique. I mean, in other countries, do you blame do you see candidates blaming voters when they lose elections? Very rarely. This is really a unique and quite frankly a new phenomenon that the Democrats made up. It's not on us to come out and support the Democratic Party no matter what. It's on them to actually become more appealing. And this was something that Howard Dean pretty explicitly implied. He stated, quote, stop complaining and get ready to pull for whoever the nominee is. You tried that in 2016 and that didn't work. Trying to beat people over the heads and forcing them to support your candidate doesn't work. You actually have to offer voters something. Voters don't vote against Republicans. They vote for Democrats. And with how unpopular the Republican Party's platform is, every election is Democrats' election to lose. So rather than lambasting us when it comes to purity tests, actually listen to what grassroots activists have to say and try to adopt what we're telling you to adopt if you ever want to be electorally viable again. But we have idiots like Howard Dean getting on the mainstream media with a large platform and just reinforcing all of the party's bad decisions, which is why the Democratic Party is a lost cause. So the only hope that we have is taking over the party with Justice Democrats and brand new Congress um, and just and just kicking all of the old school Democrats out of office because what they're doing isn't working and it's because fools like Howard Dean are constantly telling them that they're doing everything right and voters are doing everything wrong. That's not how democracy works, Dean. So over the course of the last couple of weeks, the civil war on the left, or I should say the civil war between the actual left, which is progressives, and the neoliberal left and centrists has continued to wage on because, I mean, it's already the case that even though the 2020 election is three years from now, more than three years from now, in fact, we already see the Democratic Party's donor clash trying to unilaterally anoint Kamala Harris as the next nominee in 2020. And aside from that, there are people within President Obama's inner circle that are trying to push Deval Patrick to run. Now, this is all problematic because 
people haven't made their voices heard yet, and the Democratic Party establishment is already trying to slant the process in favor of their corporate shills. And when progressives rightfully express skepticism with the neoliberals they're trying to shove down our throats once again, well, they then call us racist, sexist Bernie bros. Now, I'm glad that voters are actually skeptical and they're questioning the candidates that uh, the Democratic Party is trying to put forward because... If you don't have skepticism, then you allow the party to take advantage of you. And for too long, we've just, we've allowed the Democratic Party to go on unchecked because the Republican Party is just so crazy and off the spectrum. But now we are really realizing that, look, the Democratic Party, maybe the reason why Republicans are constantly winning elections is because the Democratic Party are not offering voters a real alternative. So maybe it's the case that we actually do have to be more skeptical of Democrats because just being a little bit less shitty than Republicans will no longer suffice, especially considering the shape that the country is in. And the overall point I want to make is that donors no longer get to dictate who we vote for and drown out our voices. Either you fall in line behind us or you lose again in 2020. It's that simple. And also that's the case in 2018, of course. Now, we often hear what neoliberals say in the mainstream media, but recently we had a breath of fresh air in Congressman Ro Khanna and Nina Turner, who both of which were on CNN, and they actually communicated what progressives are saying and got our voices across to the establishment. Surrogates for two potential presidential heavyweights on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris, are already sparring. Take a look at what Bernie Sanders supporter uh, Nomi uh, Kunst uh, said this week. She said, the Democrats will not win unless they address income inequality, no matter how bad, how they dress up their next candidate. If that candidate is in bed with Wall Street, you may as well lay a tombstone, tombstone out for the Democratic uh, Party. Does Kamala Harris have a Bernie land problem? Well, I haven't seen that the senator said she is running, so that's not for me to say. What I will say is that Nomiki is absolutely right that the Democrats have to do a better job. We lost in 2016 because we did not speak to the, to the heart of the people, did not address their concerns. The economy, income inequality, wealth inequality is real. Real income and wages have not increased since, uh, or kept up with inflation since the 1980s. So the pain that folks are feeling is real and we cannot dress that up. We have got to get out there and talk to the people, stop making up these slogans better a better deal. I mean, what, what does that mean? And it, that, that, even that slogan, even that policy that they're pushing has left out large swaths of the population, particularly people of color. So the Democrats have to stop playing games and get to the heart of it. And that's, that's, the, that's the truth of the matter. Now, absolutely everything that Nina Turner said there, as usual, was spot on. Uh, and I agree with her on 100% of what she said. Um, and Ro Khanna also chimed in, and what he said was just great. It's something that I've been talking about over the course of the last couple of months. Well, I think the lesson from Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016 is none of the insiders should pick who the candidate is. That's right. And that what we ought to have is give people the chance uh, to make their case, have a compelling economic vision, speak to how they're going to bring manufacturing jobs back. Uh, Kamala Harris is also an attractive candidate. I mean, she's had a progressive record on criminal justice. Senator Sanders, of course, has uh, moved the party on Medicare for all and many issues. But let's have a diverse, open field uh, where the establishment isn't picking the nominee. Yes. Can we please do that? I mean, if the DNC hadn't rigged the 2016 primaries, then Bernie Sanders very well could have won. I mean, this is why people say he was robbed. It's because of their shenanigans. And this is, you know, it goes further than them just limiting debates. I mean, when you look at the WikiLeaks emails of John Podesta and the DNC, it shows that there was a concerted effort 
on the behalf of people within the DNC to sabotage his campaign. I mean, it's a rigged primary. Hillary Clinton not just had the advantage when it comes to name recognition, which is fair because she can't really help that, but, I mean, she had the DNC and the media doing everything that she wanted to give her the advantage. And if the party tries to do that again, then they are just asking for a rehash of 2016 in 2020. But getting into the specifics about the establishment's favorites, Ryan Cooper of The Week laid out exactly why progressives are justified in their skepticism of these particular candidates that the establishment is currently trying to shove down our throats. So he argues the former attorney general of California, Harris, is mistrusted by the left mostly because of her roots as a prosecutor. The Black Lives Matter movement has put anyone with law enforcement history under close scrutiny, and California's criminal justice system is notoriously brutal, though it has improved recently. While she is obviously no Jeff Sessions, Harris has sometimes displayed a rather Hillary Clinton-esque tendency to say the right thing but not follow through in a vigorous way. Most notoriously, she refused to prosecute Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin's old company, One West, for numerous instances of almost certain illegal foreclosures, and she did this against the advice of her own consumer law section and has so far refused to say why. She was also the only Senate Democratic candidate to get a donation from Mnuchin himself in 2016. Booker is mistrusted because of his ties to Wall Street, most notoriously when President Obama attacked Mitt Romney during the 2012 campaign for his long career as a blood-sucking financial parasite, buying up companies only to strip their assets and drive them into bankruptcy, Booker defended Bain Capital on Meet the Press. Why? Because New Jersey is just across the river from Manhattan, and both parties are drowning in Wall Street cash. Patrick is least trusted of all because he actually works for Bain Capital as a managing director. If he were to run for president, as Obama's inner circle is apparently urging him to, President Trump would just have to copy-paste Obama's 2012 ads. In other words, there are quite substantive reasons why a leftist might not trust any of those candidates. They're probably accurate perception that all three candidates are being groomed by the same big-money donors that clustered around Hillary Clinton will only deepen the divide, because it suggests that, like pro-union rules or the public option in Obamacare, any adoption of Sanders-style proposals are mostly bait to be cast aside when it comes time to actually pass something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. What they have to do if they really want to win is put up a populist candidate. Or in fact, they don't even have to put up a populist candidate. All we're really asking for is a fair fight. Allow us to put up a populist candidate and let that race be fair. Let's have a broad, diverse field of candidates and allow a primary that... It's fair. That's not rigged where the donor class is trying to tip the scales and the media is trying to tip the scales in favor of these neoliberal shills. I mean, just stop it. We don't want these neoliberal shills shoved down our throats. And the more you push them, the more you're going to get pushed back from us. And for progressives who are averse to the idea of there being more candidates in 2020, look, that actually benefits us. Uh, I, I want, look, I want a fair race, but the more neoliberal shills, the more that Clinton supporters will split their vote and allow for Bernie Sanders to win the Democratic uh, primary in 2020 if he does decide to run as a Democrat, which presumably he will. So the thing about Democrats is that they never learn their lesson and they don't honestly care what we have to say. They would rather go down with a neoliberal shill and lose than actually be progressive. So uh, I think it was Bernie Sanders that said, you know, they don't care about going down with the Titanic. They don't care that this, the ship is sinking. All they care is that they have first class seats 
on that sinking ship. And that's exactly it. So this debate will continue. Uh, and the civil war on the left, it's not going anywhere. I mean, the Democratic Party is not going to unite anytime soon. And in fact, you know, I, when I say Democratic Party and include myself in that discussion, I'm reluctant to do so because I'm no longer a Democrat. You know, as a result of the shenanigans in 2018, I re-registered as an independent voter. And I probably won't re-register as a Democrat again unless the party changes. Although, you know, with some exceptions, if I see a Democrat or progressive running as a Democrat in 2018, I may temporarily re-register, but then change my status back to independent uh, just as a fuck you to the party because I'm sick of them stomping on progressives and shutting out our voices. I mean, look, the time has come to change. And if Democrats don't want to change, that's fine. Keep doing what you're doing. You're going to continue to lose. Meanwhile, progressives will only get more popular. The extent to which Joanne Reed has gone off the deep end really can't be overstated because lately she's made some comments on Twitter that are just so idiotic that I refuse to believe that she actually thinks the things she's saying are true. I think that Joanne Reed is a smart woman and she knows what's true and what isn't true and at this point she's just being disingenuous and outright lying to her followers. Now, over the course of the last couple of months, there's been countless examples. I've covered some of them on the show, but she recently said something that really stood out for just how ignorant it was. So in response to a Twitter user that explained how frustrated he was with the fact that the Democratic Party establishment berates progressives for being skeptical about corporate Democrats like Kamala Harris, she responded by saying, dude, all candidates raise money from corporate donors. Wake up and retire this silly talking point. Did I do it well? I think the execution was spot on. <laughs> now, the statement is obviously ignorant, but there's even broader implications here because she's lying to her followers about this and she's essentially implying that since all candidates take corporate money, well, you shouldn't worry about a candidate's campaign contributions. So in other words, she's telling her followers that they should be ignorant and vote against their own interests. Because if you're saying that all candidates take corporate money, then you're saying, well, we don't have to worry about it. So just, you know, if, if you like what they're saying, then just accept it. There's no need to question it. There's no need to be skeptical and, you know, look at their campaign finance reports. You just should accept whoever the Democratic Party gives you. Now, as someone in the media that reaches an audience of potentially millions of people each week, she should be shining a light on the corrupting influence of money in politics, but instead, she's now doing propaganda for corrupt politicians, and she's telling her viewers that they should accept said corruption. I mean, this is a level of propaganda that we see from state-run media outlets in authoritarian countries. It's just absurd. And she's also downplaying the extent to which money in politics plagues democracy because if she still likes and supports the Democratic Party unequivocally, which she does, even though they're taking corporate money, then the underlying implication is that money in politics actually might not be that big of an issue. Now, she didn't explicitly say that, of course, but that's the overall message that's being conveyed. But unfortunately for Joanne Reed, and thankfully for the rest of us, the majority of Americans don't agree with what she's saying because according to a 2016 Ipsos poll, they found that 72% of Americans want both political parties to reduce the influence of money in politics and out of a range of issues, money in politics was actually the top concern for respondents in this particular poll. Now, according to a Pew poll released in late 2015, 76% of the country believes money has a greater influence on politics today than before. And these concerns are absolutely 
absolutely valid and they're backed up by political science research because a 2014 Princeton University study published by Dr. Gillens and Page found that ordinary citizens have no impact on policy outcomes in comparison with the donor and elite class and special interests. So they found that our preferences literally had a statistically non-significant impact on policy outcomes, which led the authors to conclude, quote, our analyses suggest that majorities of the American public actually have little influence over the policies our government adopts. Americans do enjoy many features central to democratic governance, such as regular elections, freedom of speech and association, and a widespread, if still contested, franchise. But we believe that if policymaking is dominated by powerful business organizations and a small number of affluent Americans, then America's claim to being a democratic society are seriously threatened. So money in politics absolutely is a huge issue. It's perhaps one of the most defining issues of our time because money in politics affects all other policy. And if anything, if all candidates really do take corporate money like Joanne Reed is asserting here, then that's all the more reason to be more skeptical of them. But she's not telling us to be more skeptical. She's actually lambasting someone who is choosing to be rightfully skeptical about someone like Kamala Harris. And the bottom line is that what she's saying is just flat out wrong. And the candidates that actually aren't corrupt from Justice Democrats and brand new Congress decided to respond to Joanne Reed's nonsensical tweet. And I absolutely loved it. So candidate for New York's 14th district, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, responded by saying, candidate for Congress here, we shouldn't normalize corporate ownership of public policy. You can run competitively without big money. And Jason Canoe, a candidate challenging Marsha Blackburn in Tennessee's 7th district, chimed in, saying, candidate here also, and I agree. And running in Washington's 9th district, Sarah Smith replied by saying, you can have strong representatives without the need for corporate cash. We're proof. And candidate for the 1st district of Missouri, Cory Bush stated, I don't, not one dime. Now, in response to Cory Bush, Amy Valela, candidate for Nevada's 4th district, stated, Cory, they can't understand honesty in politics. That is the cornerstone of any grassroots campaign, with you in solidarity. Now, Ro Khanna stated, if you check open secrets, I have not taken a dime of corporate PAC money. Now, after getting some pushback from true progressives, Joanne Reed responded with what she probably thought was a gotcha question by saying, you want to end all fundraising? Tell me, how does one pay for a campaign? Voter registration and mobilization, not just ads, without money. And of course, the following responses immediately answered her question. Individual contributions. Corporations are not people and do not get a voice. Max contributions, close loopholes like what the Victory Fund used. It would force candidates to address the nation's issues instead of the big donors. And another Twitter user chimed in saying, Not rocket science. Regulate campaigns. The French figured it out. Shorter campaigns, limits on spending, free ads on equal basis. And <laughs> what she's saying, is so absurd because it's been done before. In fact, just last year, Bernie Sanders proved that you don't need corporate money and a super PAC to run a successful campaign. He overcame a 60-point deficit and nearly defeated the Clinton machine in a rigged primary. And not a dime of his money came from a large multinational corporation. So all of these progressive 2018 grassroots-funded candidates made a complete fool out of Joanne Reed, but I don't think it's going to resonate with her at all. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if she says something even dumber in the coming weeks. But just know that she is a smart person. She doesn't believe what she's saying. She's just lying 
to her viewers and followers and she's trying to deceive them because what she does is propaganda on behalf of the Democratic Party establishment. So no matter what the Democratic Party does, she's going to support them for it. She'll be there for them to back them up. So in trying to normalize corruption, she is really doing a disservice to all of her viewers. And it really makes her one of the more dangerous figures on TV because she's not just berating Bernie Sanders supporters anymore. She's now saying that Corruption is fine. All candidates do it. Why are you worrying about it? Just, you know, calm down with your purity tests. That's just wrong. So if you know anything about Californian politics, then you know about SB 562, which is their single payer healthcare bill that was gaining a lot of momentum. That is until the assembly speaker, Anthony Rendon, decided to unilaterally shelve the bill. So he argued that even though he's in favor of single payer, which is a joke, uh, since the bill lacked a funding mechanism, well, we should just end debate altogether on it. And that's what he decided to do. Now, if the bill lacks a funding mechanism, then that's all the more reason to actually have a debate so you can iron out the flaws and figure out a way to fund it. Now, it's not that there was no way to fund this bill because the people who were advocates for this bill, they had ideas as to how they wanted to fund it, but they just didn't agree on the precise method. But nonetheless, Anthony Rendon, because he is a shill for the health insurance industry and took thousands upon thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from them, he decided to do their bidding. And now he's going to learn very quickly that if you are a corrupt, bought-off shill, well, you may lose your job because Don Pappel of Inquisitor explains Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, a Democrat representing Paramount, California, halted the measure that would have established single-payer health care in the state of California, prompting some of the bill's supporters to immediately threaten recall action against Rendon. According to the Facebook page for the Recall Rendon efforts, the organizers of the recall have already received confirmation from the Secretary of State that the group's notice of intent was reviewed for compliance with the California Elections Code and that the signatures on the notice of intent were verified by the County of Los Angeles. The group announced that the petition drive begins this month. Recall Rendon organizers have planned weekly meetings every Tuesday in Assembly District 63, and its first major fundraiser is on August 18th. It's been over a month since SB 562, the single-payer health care measure, flopped in California, and even though Rendon has been labeled a progressive by many pundits, many progressive voters in California say they are willing to make an example out of Rendon over the health care issue. If we recall the Assembly Speaker, maybe someone else will be willing to push this bill to get it out of the Rules Committee and send it to the Assembly to get a vote on it. And this is what Jessica Cavura bs told Los Angeles Times. Maybe that will help everyone get health care. The grassroots effort to recall Rendon includes a door-knocking drive. The notice was filed by an Irvine-based USC law professor who is also an attorney for the recall effort. So... You went against your constituents and chose to prioritize the needs of your donors. And now, how's that working out for you, Anthony Renton? Uh, seems like uh, there's a lot of people that are now coming for your job and trying to recall you, which would be just a national embarrassment. So I absolutely support this effort. I hope it works. I hope that they can successfully recall Anthony Renton. So that way, other Democrats across the country get the message that if they don't support Medicare for all... We're coming for their jobs and their asses will be kicked out of office. Now, for the sake of being objective, there are flaws with this particular bill, perhaps because it was in its early state. And I do want to link you to an article published in The Intercept by David Dan. 
And the article includes dialogue between California Nurses Association's public policy director, Michael Lighty, who had this interesting back and forth about the bill. Now, I actually reject the author's argument because I think he was being too hyperbolic and really talking about just how flawed this bill was. But I think that Michael Lighty does a really good job at responding to his points and really makes the case that Anthony Rendon is not a good actor here. And what he did was still the result of corruption and the bill wasn't fatally flawed like people tried to make it out to be. That's a propagandist talking point that the health insurance industry is desperately trying to promote in California. So it's really fascinating. So I would encourage everyone to read this article. But again, I'd like to think I've been consistent in saying if this bill is flawed, then that's all the more reason to bring it to light and have a debate on it. Let's flesh out all of the flaws that it has and let's try to figure out how to fix them because look, single payer, it's not easy. Public policy making in general is a difficult task, but that's why you have the debate. But Anthony Rendon doesn't want to have a debate about this. He wants to shelf it because that's what his health insurance donors want him to do because they are shaking in their boots at the thought that California might actually become the first state in the nation to make single payer a reality. So look, Anthony Rendon is corrupt and they absolutely must recall him and make an example. So if you can support this effort, if you live in California and knock on some doors, the more power to you because this is something that needs to be done. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is probably the most corrupt and conservative Democrat in the Senate, recently had another temper tantrum when he was asked about his 2018 electoral prospects. Now, this isn't the first time that Joe Manchin had a public meltdown because earlier this year, he was on a town hall with constituents via phone call, and they basically were putting pressure on him to support more progressive policies. And he said, you know what, I'm not changing. Uh, if you don't like what I'm doing, if you don't like the policies I'm supporting, then vote me out. Now, once again, he echoed those same sentiments, but this time, albeit with more frustration, you could just tell that he's kind of at his wit's end and he knows that his career may be over soon. And he's just, he's done. He doesn't give a shit anymore. Literally, that's what he said. So CBS News explains, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who is up for re-election in a state President Trump won by a large margin, says he doesn't give a shit about losing his Senate seat. I don't give a shit. You understand? I don't give a shit. He told Charleston Gazette Mail on Sunday. Don't care if I get elected. Don't care if I get defeated. How about that? If they think because I'm up for election that I can be wrangled into voting for shit that I don't like and can't explain, they're all crazy. I'm not scared of an election. Let's put it that way. The senator went on, elections do not bother me or scare me. I'm going to continue to do the same thing I've always done. Extremely independent. Manchin's colorful comments came as a response to a letter written by West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey asking Manchin to resign from Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer's leadership team. I'm writing to urge you to put West Virginia's interests and values first and resign immediately from Senator Chuck Schumer's leadership team, Morrissey's letter to Manchin reads. Morrissey, a Republican, is running to replace Manchin in 2018. Okay, so... <laughs> Wow. Um, first of all, I don't believe that he doesn't give a shit because if he really didn't care about getting elected again, then he wouldn't have encouraged his colleagues in the Senate to sign a pledge to not campaign against a sitting colleague. Now, he 
encourage people to sign this shortly after Paula Jean Swearingen, his Democratic primary opponent, announced her campaign. So since she's more progressive, he's worried about Bernie Sanders potentially endorsing her because if Bernie Sanders endorsed her, someone who literally won all 55 counties of West Virginia, then that could really seriously harm his chances in 2018. So he does care about his electoral chances and he does want to be reelected. But here's the thing, if he actually doesn't care, then Joe Manchin can easily prove it. You can concede to Paula Jean Swearingen. I mean, if, if you really are serious, uh, you could just drop out of the race and allow Paula Jean Swearingen to become the presumptive nominee uh, for your Senate seat in West Virginia because she's more progressive, so she's obviously going to galvanize the more progressive uh, base in West Virginia. And she could more easily defeat the Republican because you're just a Republican light candidate. You can see to Republicans, you vote with Republicans more than other Democrats. So why would they be excited to come out and support you if they're just going to get someone who will screw them over a little bit less than the Republican? But I mean, regardless if Joe Manchin cares or doesn't care, we're going to try to kick him out of office anyway. And you can help with that effort by supporting the campaign of Paula Jean Swearingen because she is a real progressive. She supports Medicare for All, and she's been an activist in West Virginia for a very long time. She's spoken with people in West Virginia. She knows what's going on. She's from West Virginia, whereas Joe Manchin is so detached. He's so entrenched in that Washington, D.C. bubble that he doesn't know what people in West Virginia, let alone average Americans, want. So... It's time for change. It's time that we elect Paula Jean Swearingen. And look, if for whatever reason we're not successful in primarying him, uh, then who cares if he loses to the Republican because he votes for the Republicans anyway. I mean, with friends like Joe Manchin, who needs enemies? So it really doesn't matter if he loses to the Republican. It's a seat that honestly, you know, if Joe Manchin is, you know, the Democratic Party nominee, it doesn't really matter if Democrats keep it or not. So we have to get Paula Jean Swearingen uh, into that seat and, and she has to be elected because that's the only way you can get someone who truly cares about people in West Virginia. So I wanted to provide you guys with an update to a story that I covered last week about Bernie Sanders 2018 challenger John Svitosky. So last week I reported that John Svitosky had dropped out of the race because he tweeted out just that, that he terminated his campaign. He said, quote, the Svitosky campaign is terminated. However, his campaign may not actually be over just yet. So according to Burlington Free Press, they report that the man seeking Bernie Sanders' U.S. Senate seat says his former campaign manager played a dirty trick by announcing the end of the campaign Tuesday in a Twitter post. I let my campaign manager go, and I think it was just his little way of trying to stick it to me for that. The former campaign manager, David Moore of North Carolina, acknowledged in an interview that his group, Organizing for Democrats, had managed the Svitosky campaign Twitter account. Moore and Svitosky offered starkly different accounts of the feud that led to their separation. Svitosky said he disagreed with Moore's nasty attacks against Sanders on the campaign Twitter account. I just want to be of high integrity. I don't want to just be an attack dog, Svitosky said, adding later, his behavior had become really unacceptable to me. Svitosky said he declined to sign a contract with Moore and the two men parted ways Tuesday. Moore said Svitosky refused to endorse the Democratic Party position supporting transgender people in the military. Svitosky denied the account of the dispute and said he supports transgender rights. 
Svitaski referred to a hypothetical transgender youth as a ladyboy in a 2016 Facebook post responding to the debate over whether transgender students could use the bathroom of their choice. Svitaski said he regretted his use of words in the post, which was highlighted in a 7 Days article Wednesday. At that time, I was frustrated with both sides on that whole discussion, Svitaski said. I hate the arrogant attitudes that people have towards folks that are LGBT, and I also hate the intolerance at times of the gay rights movement. In terms of if you disagree in any way, you're a homophobe. Moore said Svitaski refused to delete a wide range of problematic social media posts. His social media presence is probably worse than Donald Trump's, Moore said. He wouldn't take advice. And now it goes even further than this because the organization that he was working with, Organizing for Democrats, actually took to Twitter to trash him on his own Twitter account, releasing multiple tweets saying OFD dropped this fool. And the communications director for OSD, Tracy Flowers, released a statement on his Twitter account saying, quote, I'm with organizing for Democrats and the prospect of a local Democrat to run against Bernie Sanders was too much to pass on. And we moved too quickly on this. Regarding John Svitaski, during in-person interviews with our chairman, Mr. Svitaski was found to be very undesirable, if not a cloaked Trump supporter. He was found to be a constant pot smoker who was reported as being as high as a kite when he went on the Jesse Waters show that hasn't actually been associated to a homeless center in over 12 years. His refusal to clean up his act led the organization to believe that his interest was nothing but a nefarious act and therefore all ties were cut. As a precaution, no fundraising mechanism was initiated for Mr. Svitaski, nor was any ever asked for. Now upon learning that he was on the Jesse Waters show, of course I had to look it up immediately and and lo and behold, he actually did appear on the Jesse Waters show last month. And he actually did speak about Bernie Sanders in a much different tone than the way he was presumably talking about Bernie Sanders on Twitter. But Jan Svidovsky says those promises are fake. And all Bernie did was steal votes away from Hillary. So he's challenging Sanders for his Senate seat and joins me now. Okay, Jan, I just want to lead with the news here. Bernie's wife under FBI investigation, if found guilty, do you think she deserves to go to jail or do you think they're getting special treatment? Oh, no, I, I don't think they're getting special treatment. The, the FBI is investigating and uh, whether or not she goes to jail, it's, uh, it's, it's not something that I could say or, or would have the right opinion. I, it, I think it depends upon the degree of guilt and, and what was done. And, and uh, if, if, in fact, uh, it, it is true that she defrauded, that the banks were defrauded or she made promises which, uh, or statements which weren't true. But uh, that's, that's something that, uh, you know, that probably prosecutors would would have to decide and and uh, I, I trust that they're doing their job okay maybe that's why Bernie said he didn't give a care about Hillary's emails because he knew he was on shaky legal ground himself um, well, but that's I, just I, speculation I, I, that's, yeah. I just want to move on um, you, you're running against Bernie Sanders because you say he's a phony why is Bernie a phony well, I, I, I'm I'm not sure that's that's the uh, the the central word I'd use. Um, although something perhaps close to it. I I I was listening to the clip that you said, and when he when he said he was fighting for uh, to to uh, to break up the banks, and yet when I, I read the Daily News interview and and they asked him about that and how he was going to do that, and he said I don't I I really don't know. I haven't looked at that. And and when yeah. he talks about uh, sing, single payer, it's uh, you know it, it's it's a 
great idea. You know, I'd, I'd like to promise uh, free health care, free prescriptions, you know, free tuition and maybe free cars. But if I, if I don't have a plan, if I'm not really working to enact those things, then, then what good are they? It's, it's just rhetoric. And, uh, you know what my, I don't my, understand? My, because I've been to Vermont many times, and it's such a beautiful state, and the people are normal, and they're fantastic. And then they elect some socialists like Bernie, who's got these crazy ideas. What's going on in Vermont? Well, well, Vermont's a wonderful state, and the, and the people are wonderful and intelligent. And I, I think what it is is, I think Bernie represents an ideal, and it's an ideal. You know, the rhetoric is an wonderful. An expensive and, ideal. And, yeah, yeah, but 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 it's an ideal. I don't think people really support Bernie Sanders. Most people who know Bernie or have tried to work with him have been put off by his arrogance and his superiority and his unwillingness to work with other people. Why do you but think Bernie's so arrogant? <laughs> Well, well, first I want to say, I think what he represents to people is someone who's willing to, to stand up and speak the truth to power and someone who cares about the little man. That's what he represents. And, that, and that's what I think is not true at all. You're I, saying Bernie, Bernie doesn't really represent the little man? No, I, I, uh, I, I don't believe he does. He, 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 he has wonderful rhetoric that would help the little man, perhaps, but he's not doing anything. He hasn't, he hasn't enacted any of these plans. Right. He, hasn't, he hasn't given plans and how he's going to do it and really help you. When I talked about caring for the homeless, it's not just, hey, the homeless ought to be cared for. I've started five homeless shelters, and, and it's what you do that matters so much more All than right. what you say. Well, it looks like you may be coming up in the polls. Bernie might be feeling the burn. And uh, good luck up there in Vermont. Thank you very much, Jan. Okay, so first of all, I learned that I've been mispronouncing his name this whole time. It's not John, it's Jan, but I'm going to continue calling him John just because that's what I'm more familiar with. Uh, and second of all, I, I mean, I have to admit, Jesse Waters was way more insufferable Jen, than uh, John Svitoski was during that entire clip because the whole time, I mean, Jesse was trying to goad him into attacking Bernie Sanders and... You know, it seemed as though John wasn't taking the bait. So now after watching that interview, um, I'm inclined to actually believe that John parted ways with his campaign manager because he thought that the attacks on Bernie Sanders were just too nasty. Um, so that actually makes me feel surprisingly a little bit bad for John in a way. And look, I, I still... Yeah, make no mistake about it. He's still an undesirable candidate because he does have homophobic views. He is politically just too right wing for me. But I, I feel bad for him in that he was kind of duped over by this organization that was just hellbent on taking down Bernie Sanders. Um, So yeah, you know, I think that that's not right that they did that to him. And he is saying that he's going to press on with his campaign. But the problem is that his campaign is in complete disarray. So, I mean, it's safe to say now that whatever small chance he had of beating Bernie Sanders before went down even more. So, I mean, you can't really not feel bad for him in this situation because the way that the campaign manager presented John on Twitter, it really made you think that you were reasonable to question his sanity. But apparently that wasn't John that was making all those tweets about bank fraud, Bernie and whatnot. So, look, John has no chance of winning, so this will probably be the last time that I cover him on this show, but I just wanted to give you guys the update so you know where he stands, and, you know, so that way I could be more accurate, uh, but look, I, I guess, you know, he's still challenging Bernie Sanders, and apparently he doesn't think Bernie Sanders is as bad as he, uh, as we were led to believe anyways, uh, and organizing for Democrats just kind of set him up to fail, but he also set him, himself up to fail, 
it's just perplexing, but at the same time, I'm drawn to the story because it's just so funny and entertaining. But look, I... He's not going to win, so I'm probably not going to talk about him again, but uh, at least you guys know where he stands. He's still running, so uh, there you have it. This past week, President Donald Trump passed his 200th day in office, and even though his administration is still relatively new, he's already in really bad shape. So when you put aside the fact that he is under investigation by the FBI for numerous reasons, he also is losing support. So week after week, there's new public opinion polls that show that his approval rating is going down. And we're even starting to see polls indicate that he's losing his core support base, which is just a disaster. So according to The Hill, they report that President Trump's approval rating is at an all-time low in a new poll amid losses in support from key demographics. Trump's approval rating is at 32% in the latest IBD TIPP poll, down five points from July. 59% of respondents say they disapprove of the job he's doing. Now Newsweek adds that confidence in Trump's ability to lead the country has shrunk, according to a new CNN poll conducted by SSRS and released early Tuesday. Since mid-January to early August, the number of Americans who feel less confident about Trump's abilities to lead on account of his behavior rose from 53 to 62%. Some of that is being driven by what he says on social media. Among white Americans without college degrees, the president has seen a fall of 12 percentage points of those who strongly approve of the job he's doing since February. Strong approval for Trump among Republicans also dipped to 59% from 73% in February, according to the poll, which sampled the opinions of 1,018 adults across the U.S. The erosion in support for Trump among his key demographic that he courted during the 2016 election campaign and who helped him win the White House tracks with the findings in a Quinnipiac University poll released last weekend. It showed a 10 percentage point drop in approval for Trump among white, non-college educated voters between June and August. And in the same CNN poll referenced in that article by Newsweek, they found that 6 in 10 people don't believe President Trump is honest and trustworthy. So he's just hemorrhaging support and his administration at this point has just been a complete disaster. And with a president this unpopular and unable to cultivate legitimacy, this isn't just bad for Donald Trump. I mean, this is actually bad for democracy. It could be destabilizing for the well-being and health of democracy. And we already know that our democracy is in trouble, but Donald Trump is exacerbating the death of American democracy. Now, part of the problem is that his administration has been plagued by leaks that have just completely embarrassed Donald Trump. So, for example, we recently learned that the president receives a folder twice a day that contains positive news about himself, including screenshots of positive news cryons, those lower third headlines and crawls, admiring tweets, transcripts of fawning TV interviews, praise-filled news stories, and sometimes just pictures of Trump on TV looking powerful. Wow, that's sad. But when it comes to the more serious leaks, because of course, you know, that's less substantive, but federal environmental scientists actually decided to leak a 543-page climate change report before Trump had the opportunity to hide it away from the public, which is another embarrassment to his administration since it contradicts what he said about climate change. And to me, I think that the leaking of this climate change report is more embarrassing to Donald Trump because leaks that reveal how thin-skinned and narcissistic and egotistical he is, you know, that's one thing. But 
denying reality is an entirely different story because at this point if you deny climate change you're denying reality and i think that these leaks are partially culpable in what's hurting him aside from his own stupidity but what's problematic is that he is moving us closer towards authoritarianism by cracking down on leaks so attorney general jeff sessions announced recently that he is intending to crack down on leakers and maybe pushing the envelope when it comes to forcing journalists to reveal their sources saying quote we respect the important role that the press plays and will give them respect but it is not unlimited now the question is what do you do if you're donald trump and you're unable able to contain leaks, your bleeding support, and the media gives you non-stop negative coverage. Well, of course, you take a page right out of the playbook of authoritarian dictators and you launch your own state-run propaganda network. I'm not joking. He literally launched Trump TV and this was the first abomination that they produced. Thank you for joining us as we provide you the news of the week from Trump Tower here in New York. More great economic news on Friday. The July jobs report added a better than expected 209,000 jobs. Overall, since the president took office, President Trump has created more than 1 million jobs. The unemployment rate is at a 16-year low and consumer confidence is at a 16-year high, all while the Dow Jones continues to break records. President Trump has clearly steered the economy back in the right direction. On Wednesday, the president introduced the RAISE Act. For decades, a steady rise in immigration has depressed the wages of American workers. The RAISE Act will increase wages, decrease poverty, and save the taxpayers billions. Americans deserve a raise, and President Trump is finally putting the American worker first. Also on Wednesday, President Trump awarded the Medal of Honor to one of our Vietnam War heroes, Specialist 5 James McLuhan. McLuhan risked his life on nine separate occasions, saving many of his wounded peers. President Trump also honored veterans as a whole with yet another VA reform package that will enable millions of veterans to receive better access to care. President Trump is dedicated to honoring these men and women who fought valiantly for our country and ensuring that they receive the care that they deserve. Thank you for joining us, everybody. I'm Kaylee McEnany, and that is The Real News. That was real. That was not a parody, that wasn't satirical, that was Donald Trump's attempt to create a state-run source for his administration. Now, state-run TV sources are unacceptable because they're obviously not objective. They're biased. It's the definition of biased. You can't get any more biased than that. So they'll obviously only report on news that's kind to Donald Trump, or they'll just outright lie and that's, in fact, exactly what they did because the clip said that Donald Trump has, quote, clearly steered the economy back in the right direction. But actually, Donald Trump hasn't done that. He is riding on the momentum that President Obama partially generated with regard to the economy because according to CBS News, quote, as far as job creation is concerned, Mr. Trump hasn't changed the direction of the economy. Under his predecessor, former President Obama, the last six months of his administration showed job creation at a slightly faster rate than the Trump administration. And the thing that we all have to realize is that presidents don't have that much control over the economy. They just don't. I mean, they're able to kind of steer the economy in one direction, but they don't have that much control. So Donald Trump couldn't just get in office and change the economy and, you know, flip it and do a 180 within the, his first 200 days. That's, that's impossible. So this 
propaganda show that he launched is just absurd and it's, un it's unacceptable, quite frankly. Now, to be fair, of course, President Obama released propagandish videos where, you know, it, it showed footage of his supporters crying as he walked into the, to the room as if he was a saint, but he never did anything on this level. I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump makes... President Obama's propaganda videos look as credible as The Intercept at this point. I mean, this is propaganda on a new level. So, of course, the problem is that doing propaganda and having your own state-run media outlet isn't going to stop you from losing support. The only way Donald Trump can turn his failing administration around is if he actually starts giving a shit about the people and gives voters a, throws, you know, throws them a bone. I mean, he's got an office and has done nothing but try to give him and his buddies tax cuts. He wants to cut taxes for the wealthy. He wants to cut health care for the many. I mean, he is doing nothing to prove to us that he is as populist as he says he was during the campaign trail, which is why many of us say, correctly so, that he was a faux populist. And I tell him to stop golfing every day and actually represent the people of this country, but I think I'd actually prefer that he golfed instead and took more vacations because the less that he's in office, the less that he's going to be fucking things up because he's clueless. He's absolutely clueless. He's a fucking idiot. I mean, the guy has no intelligence whatsoever. So the less that he can do, I think the better we'll all be. So, you know, Donald Trump is, he's bleeding support and his administration is failing because he's a liar. He's a coward and he's not representing the people like he claimed he would. Surprise, surprise. And future generations are going to be laughing at him when they read about his shenanigans in history books. So he's just a national embarrassment. Hi, everyone. So I am here with congressional candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez running in conjunction with the Justice Democrats and brand new Congress to represent New York's 14th district. Alexandria, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm so happy to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you because you are quickly becoming one of the more higher profile justice Democrats. And I think that's because you are saying a lot of things that's resonating with a lot of people. So uh, before we start really the official interview, the first question that I always ask new congressional candidates is, so with regards to H.R. 676, that is John Conyers Medicare for All bill. If you're elected, would you co-sponsor that? Absolutely. We need Medicare for all in this country. We need single payer and uh, we cannot stop fighting until we have it. Perfect. Now, one thing that I love is that you're already having an impact on Washington, D.C. So I think you're one of the more interesting cases in that when you announced your congressional bid, um, your opponent, Joe Crowley, actually co-signed or co-sponsored H.R. 676, which is really interesting. So I wanted to get your comment on that. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it was incredibly exciting, and it's not it's not often that you see immediate results from uh, announcing a political campaign. I know that you know residents of New York 14 have been calling the congressman's office for months and months and months, thousands of phone calls on HR 676 to no response, no reply, and then. Um, the week that we announced our campaign on a platform for Medicare for all, all working class Americans, all Americans, period, having access to equitable and dignified health care, he caved. He caved on the issue. Um, he co-sponsored it, which is a fantastic 
Um, it's a fantastic short-term win, but we're already starting to see him hedging on that position. His, uh, you know, a large source of his funding, of his donation funding, is from private insurance corporations. So although he has agreed to co-sponsor the bill, in his public statements, he has been talking about shoring up the ACA. Let's, you know, let's let's be a little steady here on Medicare for all and um, shoring up and protecting private insurance markets. So I think we need to keep the we need to keep the pressure on. Um, after that, I have publicly taken the stand up for Medicare for all pledge. So I have pledged uh, to it's a Justice Democrats pledge. Um, and I've pledged to all supporters and residents of New York 14 that in any conversation about health care, I'm not going to co-sponsor one way and speak another way. I'm going to remain consistent in my support of Medicare for all in all public conversations about healthcare in this country. And see, to me, you are really doing a great thing here. You're separating someone, you're separating yourself who genuinely supports Medicare for all because it's it's a principle that you have. You believe that it's the right type of healthcare system, because objectively speaking, it really is when you look at other countries around the world, Medicare for all, you know, some sort, single payer, universal healthcare, that's the way that modern industrialized countries do it. But the point I want to make is that you support it because that's your genuine position. Joe Crowley supports it because now his job prospects are threatened. So it's not necessarily a move based on principle, but more so one that's based on politics. He doesn't want to lose his job and he knows he has someone like you that is coming up and you're gaining a lot of notoriety. And that's the only reason why he's deciding to support it. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, too, that when Democrats are a current minority in Congress, you can co-sponsor anything with little consequence. The question is, when we get a majority in 2018, where are those chips going to fall? And if you follow the money, it we're, we are going to get a flip unless we change the representation of our district, which is what Ocasio 2018 seeks to do and Justice Democrats and brand new Congress seeks to do. Right. And what you're doing is you're really you're you're vying to represent the people, not just in New York's 14th, but across the country, because poll after poll is showing that public support for Medicare for all or a single payer type system, however you want to refer to it, it's gaining a lot of momentum. It's never been more popular. And even among Republicans, surprisingly, a plurality now supports Medicare for all. So, I mean, I really feel like we have this opportunity to jump on this and really secure Medicare for all for future generations and ourselves. So I don't know if you feel the same way about that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm so excited to also be as a as also a brand new Congress candidate um, as well. I'm so excited to be having people on the other side of the aisle, such as Rob Ryersey out in Arkansas. He's a registered Republican and he has he is extremely supportive of H.R. 676 and the idea of Medicare for all. We are starting to reach a consensus in this country. 60% of Americans believe in government's role in healthcare. We know that as a developed nation, we are educating our people. We need to make sure that they are healthy and that people aren't being, you know, that we aren't seeking a profit motive off of cancer diagnoses and other serious illnesses. Additionally, we are healthier with Medicare for all. We are more likely to seek preventative care under Medicare for all. 
so that we don't get as sick in the first place. It's it's a no-brainer. It's a huge cost savings. Um, just in the state of New York alone, we spend $160 billion on healthcare. But with the proposed single-payer uh, proposition currently in the New York State Assembly, that would half our cost, decrease our cost by 50%, 20% of Medicare, or rather 20% of healthcare um, costs are in administrative and billing services alone, let alone all of the efficiencies that we will incur by bringing this into a nationalized system. Exactly. And look, I just want to thank you for pushing this issue so relentlessly because there's a lot of people who are running for Congress, um, excluding you and the Justice Democrats and people running through brand new Congress, that they just don't have the courage to represent um, an issue that is growingly you know, popular. So it, it's frustrating that only now we have people really pushing the envelope. So I want to thank you because I, you're at you're at the front lines really for Medicare for all and having the courage to run unequivocally, you know, on this issue. And I think that's just great. So one thing that I think is very important to bring up with um, campaigns like yours, because we're seeing this become uh, becoming an increasingly popular uh, method, is to not accept corporate money. So you are running and you're putting yourself at a disadvantage because your opponent Joe Crowley, he's accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars from large multinational corporations from special interests, but you are choosing to run uh, just on grassroots donations. You don't have a super PAC. So can you explain to me why you think that even though you're disadvantaging yourself here, why it's so important to not take corporate money? Absolutely, because today in America, we are not at a lack of ideas. We do, Our problems don't come from a lack of ideas. Our, problem, our problems don't come from a lack of ability or capacity. Our problems come from a lack of political will. And that lack of political will comes from the corrupting influence of money in politics. It is very hard to run a campaign on small dollar donations. And in fact, running a campaign on small dollar donations basically forces you to put your inherent faith in people, put your inherent faith in your constituency. And um, most, most of our incumbents in Congress today don't have that. They don't have that faith in people to fund their campaigns. And so they turn to Wall Street and corporations to finance their political careers. But what happens in that initial compromise in the and the way you run for office is the way that you really inhabit that office i know we talk about you know that you campaign in in poetry and you govern in prose but really the ideals that with which one and with which an, a candidate runs are the same ideals and should be consistent with the way that they govern. And so if you are running a Wall Street-backed campaign, you're going to be having a Wall Street-backed uh, tenure in Congress. And so even though it's harder, even though we're technically at a monetary disadvantage, where we have an enormous advantage is in people power, we will have, we already have volunteers on the ground riled up and ready to go. And that just doesn't happen with my opponent who was actually appointed to office 20 years ago and never challenged since. He was never formally elected to office. The district is 70% people of color and we have never had a person of color represent us in American history. We have got the people on our side. We have got the will on our side. And just because we're not rolling in Wall Street money doesn't mean that we don't have a chance. We do. I'm, I'm a working person, but that is the way our government was designed to work. 
This is the spirit of the Constitution that established the nation and the governance with which we we per, which persists today. And so the big thing is that I seek to govern with the spirit of the law, not just by the not just by the letter of the law. So I think that that's extremely important and that the political will to refuse small, to refuse large donations is the same political will with which I I will pursue Medicare for all, campaign finance reform, uh, renewable energy economy by 2028. It takes guts, but that guts is what we need in Washington right now. Everyone is so scared to say no to Wall Street that people, everyday working people are suffering because of it. For what? There is no rational reason why with why our government should be acting to take away our health care and strip our educational options. We need the moonshots, you know, that's that's where we are right now. We need to be focusing on on switching to a renewable energy. We need to be focusing on going to Mars. We need to be focusing on making sure that every man, woman, and child has the capacity to choose the life that they want to choose without being worried about whether they have a corporate insurance policy or whether they can afford a deductible or a premium. I think that you would probably agree that, you know, once you take this money, even if you may run initially with good intentions, that money, it over time, it's very corrupting. It it changes the way that you view the world. The people who you hang around with, you know, lobbyists from Wall Street, they really tend to change the way that you view, view not just the world, but policy as well. So what do you think the solution would be? Because there's not going to be everyone as, you know, Everyone won't be as courageous as you and Justice Democrats and brand new Congress to not take corporate money. So what do you think the long term solution is legislatively in order to get money out of politics? What would you support? We need to we need to either pass a, a constitutional amendment or we need to take Citizens United back to the Supreme Court. Um, this is the. This is the heart of the issue. Citizens United that says that basically says money is speech. Money is not speech. Money is commerce. And commerce is one of the central tenets that need to be reg that is deemed regulated regulated above in the United States Constitution. Um, commerce is what is needs does need to be regulated. There's a reason the founding fathers stated that Congress has the ability to regulate commerce and the idea that money is speech, that that a thousand dollar check is somehow in the same realm as a protest is laughable. The notion is laughable. And we're seeing the results. You know, we're seeing the results of Citizens United. We're seeing how how in the 2016, you know, uh, in the in the elections, the majority of Americans were disappointed with both of their general election options. And the, the reason is because they know that the majority of Congress doesn't have them number one in mind. My, my opponent, he just recently did a fundraiser and the only option to attend was a $2,500 ticket. That's, you know, that is percentage points of, um, that is multiple percentage points of my district's average annual income. We need to, we need and moreover, it's also a time issue. When you're spending so much money raising big dollar donations, you are not spending time with your community, with your constituents, but in listening to them, it's it's it it is a threat. It is an existential threat to our democracy. And it either 
either by proposing and supporting a constitutional amendment, which I absolutely will legislatively. Um, we also need to look at how we pursue this in the courts as well and whether um, the Supreme Court, you know, would consider overturning this decision. Obviously, with recent appointments, that's become less likely, but um, it is still possible. And when it comes to something like public financing of elections, would you support something like that as well? Yeah, we in New York City, our citywide elections, we actually have public financing. And it's been incredible for the city. In New York City, if you want to run for office, the city will give you six to one matching donations. For every wow. donation under $175 you receive, the city will match that donation six times. And what have we seen as a result? A boon of progressive candidates and progressive policies that have been enacted in New York City. In New York City, we have universal pre-K education. In New York City, we just recently passed um, $15 minimum wage. And if we had more public financing of elections, I guarantee that those policies would become more widespread across the nation. Because now, all these New York City has city council elections happening right now, and those city council candidates are going to everyday people because they're, you know, in a cynical way, they're it, it, it's not even um, a choice of political will or courage, but it's incentivized. It's actually financially incentivized to go after small dollar donations because you will get that six to one matching. I think public financing is a fantastic idea, and it's justified as well, considering that. Elections is, you know, the most basic foundational elections and voting are some of the most basic foundational uh, democratic acts. That's fantastic to hear. I actually didn't know about that. And six to one is actually a pretty high ratio because it's an enormous ratio. Yeah. Whenever I think about public financing of elections, you know, some of the more generous run ones that I've seen in certain cities and whatnot is, you know, they'll match at 50 percent. And I mean, six to one, that's and you're already seeing the results of that. It's just good public policy. So that that's very encouraging. Now, one thing that I think is really important is because you're running as a Democrat and currently, you know, the Democratic brand it's toxic, not just with Republicans, but among the left as well, because a lot of people feel as though the Democratic Party isn't representing ordinary working class voters. So as someone who's running, you know, under the Democratic Party's umbrella, what do you think the party needs to do to reform and become more in tune with what working class people want? I think the answer is simple. We need to have the courage and not be shy to advocate for bold uh, legislation in our platform for working class Americans. We can't, you know, recently the Democratic Party, they, they came out with this slogan, a better deal. And nobody knows what better means because they're not, okay, a better deal, that's not single payer healthcare. A better climate, that's not 100% renewables by 2028. A better, you know, education without committing the free public college tuition for all Americans. So what does better mean? And I think we need to define that. I'm not shy to define it. I'm not shy to tell the people of New York 14, listen, I, these are the exact policies that I am going to advocate for. I'm not going to shy down from them. And I'm running my campaign so that I'm not going to be financially influenced to back down from those positions. Um, I mean, so in New York, we have a major deadline. My the the primary election is a year away. 
But as many people know, um, last year, New York had three million independents disenfranchised during the Democratic primary. And so we're trying to prevent that from happening in our primary. Um, but what that means is that all independents and unaffiliated voters must register by this October 13th. You have less than 90 days to switch your party affiliation and register with the Democratic Party for next year's primary. It's onerous and draconian, but we're trying to, to get it in. And that means that I've been talking to a lot of independents lately. And I respect independence. I I don't see party affiliation as some kind of hard line. And I know a lot of Democrats do and want to reinforce that paradigm. But independent voters are the most important. And I know this is a very taboo thing to say, but independent voters are some of the most are is arguably the most important segment of voters in the country. They're the largest plurality. There are more independents than there are Republicans or Democrats. So the idea that we somehow must lock out independents, I, you know, I respect independent voters. And I want to make sure that they have a voice in our primary, because unfortunately, in New York, we lock them out. We lock out 3 million voters. We prevent them from from having a say in who's finally on their ballot. And for a segment of voters that's the largest segment of voters in the country, that's extremely problematic. Um, you know, and I understand that there are a lot of Democrats that would disagree with me that that prioritize party loyalty over the well-being of our country, but I'm not one of them. Um, if we're if the Democratic Party is going to be the best party and best option for this country, we got to mean it and we need to commit to that and we need to honor all voters and we need to care about the well-being of Republican and independent voters as well. And that doesn't mean running to the center. It doesn't mean being neoliberal or centrist. It means making sure that they have health care and making sure that they can educate themselves as they see fit. And um, the idea that those that independent voters need to be disenfranchised and that neither party should listen to them is, um, I think it's a little insulting to our democracy. Right. And, you know, the thing about this is that that I find personally frustrating is they kind of put party loyalty at the top of priorities when, you know, average Americans, as you know, they're not really thinking about party loyalty. They're thinking about jobs. They're thinking about the economy. They're thinking about, you know, climate change, which is encroaching on us. So as someone who is shirking party orthodoxy, um, you know, that makes you relatively controversial, even though what you're saying is common sense, you know. Uh, so I find that really frustrating that to say something like what you just said, which is practical, you know, which is strategic, is is difficult. So, yeah, I agree with opening up the primaries uh, to independents because you're right. Independent voters are the largest plurality of voters in the country, and to disenfranchise them means that you lose. You know, you're prioritizing party loyalty above winning. Yeah, and you know, you know why states like Ohio are so important in the general election because the because the electoral laws in Ohio they equally treat all voters the same. You can choose your ballot the day of the election, the one that you want, and you can have a voice in any and every election in Ohio as you'd like. And that's why so many of our of, of our presidential candidates spend and dedicate so much time in that state. And 
The reason why is because it's one of the few states that neither party has legislated lock, stock and barrel into, you know, their little chest and their little side. And, um, you know, some people may may, you know, insult or think that what I'm saying is like totally sacrilegious. But I think it makes me an I think it makes me a Democrat in the truest sense, because Democrats and this party were founded on advocacy for working people. And um, and I think that my positions advocate for working people way better than any establishment Democrat does. I truly care about the children and families in our district. And I it doesn't you know, in New York, an unaffiliated voter or an inactive voter also gets locked out of the primaries, which means that they only allow people who, to, who have even registered as a Democrat, they will still lock you out of the primary if you haven't participated in the last, you know, two, three elections. And I think it's important that we, especially on this week, this week is the 52nd anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And we should be focusing on on increasing and expanding our access to the ballot box with automatic voter registration, exploring options like ranked choice voting, et cetera, because these are going to bring us to our more truer sense of a democracy. And the idea that we wanna defend positions that, that ebb our right to vote instead of increasing our right to vote is, to me, it's indefensible. Agree, agree totally. So as someone who, you know, you're not taking corporate donations, of course, we covered that. But what I noticed with grassroots candidates is that you guys, you know, if you're not taking corporate money, what you talk about is just exactly what voters are saying we need. Uh, so as someone who actually knows what voters in New York's 14th want, what would you say would be your top legislative goals if you were elected, I, I mean, what would you really prioritize? Because there's a there's so much that we need to do in this country. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you could really rank a couple of them, what would you say you'd fight for the most? Absolutely. Well, single payer health care is probably in the top three. Um, also, infrastructure. We have a proposal for a new New Deal here, um, not just in not just for New York 14, but across the country, and that's very closely tied to our plan to building out a renewable energy economy. We need to rebuild this entire country, not just every bridge and every road, but we need information infrastructure, gigabit, gigabit internet across the country, and um, we we are going to need a lot of high skilled workers to put that into motion. And so, um, so you know, public education, uh, access to public education and public college, including vocational trades and apprenticeships is something that is very near and dear to my heart. So um, our new New Deal, I would say, is, um, is at the core of, of legislation that I'm very passionate about, very excited um, to pass and single payer health care, of course. So I like to think of myself as a very family centric um, candidate. I look towards the policies that are going to be best for moms, dads, and kids. That is what I care so much about. And and those policies, single payer health care, ensuring that parents have have access to the health care that they need and children, that those children can look forward to a, a future and they don't have to think you know, I'd love to be an engineer, but I won't, I can't afford college. So I'm, 
need to carve out a different path in my life. Do the thing that you want to do. And it's better for our economy. We're all better off when we actualize the potential of every American. And we need to open up the paths that and and that is in, that includes single payer health care as public college tuition and a new new deal that'll put Americans to work. Well, that that all sounds fantastic. So after hearing you speak, you unequivocally have my endorsement because you're one of the few candidates that I can, I can feel confident knowing that when you get in office, you're actually going to be fighting for us. And part of that is one, of course, because you're not taking corporate money, but you just you you could tell you've been speaking with voters and you know what they want and, and need specifically. Yeah. So I, I want to make this pitch for you because um, I, I know it gets tiresome. We always ask for money, you know, for <laughs> candidates, but this is really important. Um, if you really support people like Alexandria, you've got to donate anything you can, a dollar, two dollars, whatever makes a huge difference because, you know, she's at a disadvantage, but she's someone who would really make a difference in the country. So can you tell us where we can support you? Not just monetarily, but I mean, if there's a way we can sign up to support and, you know, knock on some doors for you, um, let us know where we can find that info. Yes. Ocasio2018.com slash donate. If you'd like to, you know, contribute financially to the campaign, that's OCA. SIO 2018. There you can sign up to our email list. You'll get all information about future canvassing events, big events. Also, um, if you have skills to contribute in other ways, if you want to join our field team, do it all right there. Um, We have volunteer events going on. We have so many people in New York really excited about our campaign. We have shook up the establishment here and they have really perked up. so we're really excited about that. Please support us, Ocasio2018.com, sign up, Ocasio2018.com slash donate. Um, and we are 100% people powered. So anything that you can give, even if it's five bucks, our average contribution is hovers around the $10 mark, um, depending on the week. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but every little bit counts and it is so important and um i just really appreciate everyone who's out here rooting for our justice democrats it's it's it is people that allow us to put people over party um it is the actual individual contributions and support of these campaigns that allow a democrat like me to run on the same platform as a Republican like Rob Ryersey, because we're willing to put our differences aside and both agree that Medicare for all is important, both agree that public college tuition is important, and that we need to put the futures of American families above anything else. Well, that sounds absolutely great to me. So yeah, if you can if you can support Alexandria, then that would be much appreciated because even if you don't live in New York's 14th district, she'll be voting on legislation that affects all of our lives. And of course, you know, she she told you what she supports and we are just getting a snapshot, really. Um, what, what is the link to go to see your more uh, your broader platform? Absolutely. So if you go to brandnewcongress.org slash platform, you will see everything laid out there, all of our plans. If you have, if our supporters have any questions, feel free to tweet at me or post on Facebook, social media. Um, I try to be as available as I can be um, to all of our supporters that have any additional questions. 
Perfect. Thank you so much. Because yeah, it, it's we can only talk about you know a, a little bit of issues on these short interviews, but there's so much, and I know that you have a lot you want to talk about. So thank you for linking us to that. So yeah, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, 2018. Please support her campaign. She is running a fantastic people powered movement campaign, and you know I'm, I'm just so excited about it. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope that you guys enjoyed that interview. Uh, I think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a phenomenal candidate, and I certainly enjoyed talking to her, and I'm very excited about her campaign. But when it comes to this episode, that's it. I've got nothing else for you guys. Uh, so if you've made it this far, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I want to send another huge shout out to the Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors because you guys really help out the show when YouTube <laughs> is uh, not helping us out so much. So thank you all so much. You know, I, I'm just... I, I'm always grateful. I say it every week, but I really, um, I want you to know how much I am appreciative of all of your guys' generosity. It just means so much to me. So uh, I will see you all next week. Uh, have a great week. Hey.